You know, um, I don't know if any of you guys have ever uh, kind of had a period in your life where God really like starts messing you up and like messing with your plans and just kind of wrecking stuff. And that's kind of what he's doing in me right now. Like he's just kind of messing me up in a really good way um, because I don't know, I've learned over the course of my life that when uh, I, I try to make plans and I try to do things that they never really work very well. And so it's actually a good thing when God kind of messes up my plan and, and kind of wrecks those things and does what he wants to do in and through me. And, and God's really been uh, speaking to me a lot. I, I, uh, as I was chatting with Chris and, uh, earlier, and he and I were both just discussing how we're, we're convinced that, that God wants to do something special in the Durham region in particular, and specifically Oshawa. I just want to remind you guys, when God called Jen and I to Oshawa originally, um, you know, I mean, we all know that South Oshawa uh, has a reputation, right, that's less than sparkling around the Durham region. And, um, you know, I think that most of the people that say those things don't live here and they don't really know what it's like. And I've come to, to find that South Oshawa is really a great place uh, with great people. Uh, but regardless, that's the reputation a lot of times that it has. And guys, uh, over and over and over again in Scripture and throughout history, we see God using and working in the places that the world would least expect God to be. God is always in the places where people think he's never going to be. God's always, Jesus came and he hung out with sinners, right? Like Jesus didn't come and hang out with the upper middle class, hobnobbing at the parties, you know, and things like that. Jesus came and he got down on his hands and knees in the dirt and he worked. And he worked amongst people who were broken and messy. So if you feel like my, my life just, I feel broken and messy. I feel like I don't have enough faith. I feel like I don't have enough this. I'm not good enough. Guess what? Good news. Jesus came for people like you. And he wants to work through people like you. People that think, I can't do anything. How could God ever use me? Well, that's a good place to start. You're in the right spot. Because you got to get there first. You got to get to the point where you, you really truly believe, I can't do anything without God. Like, what am I going to do? That's when God's got something to work with in you, when you're empty of yourself. And so we're going to gather together to pray and have an emphasis on, on prayer and beg God to come and pour His Spirit out on our lives and move in a way that we've never seen Him move here in this city and in our region. You know, the, in the book of Acts, when the disciples uh, gathered together and uh, Jesus risen from the dead, and it was right after he was, uh, right before he was going to ascend into heaven, and he told him, wait, don't go anywhere yet. I want you to wait until the promise of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, not many days from now. And for 10 days, they waited, and they prayed. They waited, they prayed together for 10 days in that upper room, and 10 days later, the Holy Spirit fell upon them and the rest is history. Jerusalem was turned upside down. Judea was turned upside down. Samaria was turned upside down. And the church of Jesus Christ was born. And the world's never been the same. And so we're going to wait before God. We're going we're gonna to take a month. And, and some people on our leadership team are specifically going to be taking 10 days to really pray and fast and, and dig deep and seek God. Uh, so I would just encourage you to be a part of that next Sunday after church. And like I said, if you don't, if you're not comfortable praying out loud, that's okay. You're not going to be asked to pray out loud. We're not going to pick on you and go, hey, you, I want you to stand up and pray. We're not going to do that to you. Come on now. We look, we're, we're nice people. All right. We're not going to embarrass you. 
All right, so we're in our, our series on the book of Mark. We're in week three, working through the book of Mark, looking at the life of Jesus. Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It's after Matthew and it's before Luke. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you're free to use one of those Bibles on the table in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, then congratulations. That's our gift to you. Take it home with you, please. Take them. Uh, that's what they're there for. We'd love for you to take a Bible home with you. Uh, so we're going to be in Mark chapter two today. Uh, just uh, for those of you that may not know, uh, there's four Gospels in the New Testament. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all chronicle the life of Jesus. They're uh, four um, chronicles of the life of Jesus given from different perspectives. All right? And uh, so we're going through the book of Mark. Um, you know, people make all sorts of outrageous claims uh, out there. There's all type, types of claims that people make uh, that they can't back up. Right? Uh, I, I have... Uh, I met a guy last year that probably took the cake for me in terms of people that have made claims uh, that were just pretty outrageous. Uh, we were actually down at Lakeview Park, and I've heard that this guy is actually kind of infamous in Oshawa, so maybe some of you guys are going to know who I'm talking about. But I met a man, uh, we were actually going out and you know, just asking people if we could pray for him, and we got to talking, and he told me that um, he uh, had special powers. And I said, oh, okay, cool. And, and he said, uh, he can stare at the sun for as long as possible and it doesn't hurt his eyes. And I said, well, that's, you know, I, I, it was interesting. I don't even remember what I responded, except I probably smiled and nodded, which is what you typically do in situations like that. And then he proceeded to tell me um, that uh, he asked me, he actually asked me this question. He said, have you ever heard of the Holy Spirit? And I said, I, I have. And he said, well, you're looking at him. And I, <laughs> I said... So this is what I actually said. You said, you know what I think? And, he, and I said, I think you're a blasphemer. And he said, well, that's your opinion. <laughs> and um, so anyways, it just got me thinking, you know, like uh, I asked him, you know, he said he, when he was telling me he could look at the sun, I said, oh, yeah. I was like, well, look at the sun then. And he didn't want to do it right there. And it just got me to thinking about how people make all sorts of outrageous claims, but they can never back them up. Well, today we're going to look at Jesus making a claim that's going to make a lot of people mad, and to a lot of people it's going to seem outrageous, but we're going to see Jesus back it up. Um, we're um, in Mark 2. Jesus has been traveling throughout Galilee, which is kind of his hometown region, and now he's back in Nazareth. Okay, he's back in his, uh, or Capernaum, excuse me. Uh, he's back in his hometown, kind of his operations center, and Jesus is kind of a big deal now. Okay, he's been healing people, uh, things have been happening. He's been preaching the gospel, and crowds are flocking to him. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So let's go ahead and read. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, there's no way to know what exactly was wrong with this man. I know it says the paralytic, but um, it, that's, you know, it could have meant that he was lame, that he couldn't walk, uh, but uh, he wasn't necessarily paralyzed. But regardless, what we do know is that his condition was clearly desperate. It was desperate enough that he had four friends that put him on a mat and literally carried him up to a roof and were so desperate to get him to Jesus that they like made a hole in somebody else's roof. Now, I love the determination of the four friends here in getting their paralytic friend to Jesus. 
And their desperation shows that they truly believed that Jesus could actually do something about his paralysis. And they don't let anything stop them from getting him to Jesus, not even roofs or crowds. You know, the type of people that typically experience God's power in their lives are desperate people just like this. I mean, just as I was reading the story, I started thinking about other stories that we see in the New Testament, like Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see, right? The, the little nursery school song goes. He was short, and so there were crowds surrounding Jesus, and so he was so desperate just to go to look at Jesus, he climbs up in this tree. Or then there was the woman who had a discharge of blood, right? And she was so desperate to get to Jesus that while Jesus was on the way to Jairus' house, because Jairus' daughter was sick, she pressed through the crowds and got down on her hands and knees and thought, if I can just touch the edge of Jesus' garment, I can be made well. Or then there was blind Bartimaeus who was beside the road and when he heard that Jesus was coming by, he starts crying out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody was telling him, Shut up, Bartimaeus, be quiet. He doesn't want to listen to you. And he just cried out all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. He was desperate and he experienced healing that day. Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to see. And Jesus said, Be it done for you according to your belief. All these people encountered the power of God and were healed. They got the attention of Jesus because they sought him with all of their heart and believed that he could heal him. What about you? Are you sitting around waiting on God to show up in your life? Or are you seeking him with all of your heart? That's what these men did. And look what happened. Let's look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Notice that word saw. Faith can always be seen. It's never invisible. It lives in the public domain. You know, culture today wants to push faith out of the public eye and into the private sector. Culture says, you can believe whatever you want, just don't bring your beliefs to work or to school, or into the politics, or anywhere else except your church. Keep it to yourself. But you see, that's not what faith is. If Jesus is king, then Jesus isn't just king for one and a half hours on Sunday, or at Lighthouse and small groups during the week. Jesus is king 24-7. He's my king when I'm at work. He's my king when I vote, when I go out to eat, when I'm at home talking to my wife, all the time. So people are going to see my faith no matter where I am. Can Jesus see your faith? I'm not talking about Sunday mornings. I'm talking about at work, at home with your kids, at school when you're talking to your classmates. If Jesus can't see your faith, I'm just going to, this might hurt a little bit, but I'm just going to be real. If Jesus can't see your faith, it's probably because it isn't there. Ask yourself, how do I stand out from those around me? How does my faith in Jesus make my behavior different? Faith is critical to the spiritual life. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 says that you are saved by grace through faith. So faith is, faith is the very vehicle by which we have a, a relationship with God, by which we are saved. 
Now, what's interesting is that these men in this instant, they brought their friend to Jesus having faith that Jesus could heal him. Could actually like heal him of his paralysis and make him walk. But instead, Jesus forgives his sin. So, obviously a question arises. Why? Why did Jesus do that? Why does Jesus forgive instead of heal right here? Well, there's two reasons that I can think of. Number one, Jesus wants to highlight this man and all of our bigger problem. He wants to highlight the bigger problem. You see, by, by forgiving this man's sin, Jesus was showing everyone that paralysis is bad, but sin is worse. Paralysis causes suffering in this life. Sin damns us eternally. Most of us don't think that way, though. And that's exactly why Jesus did this. Most of us really don't think about that. Most people aren't concerned about sin. They're concerned about cancer, or broken relationships, or debt, or back pain, or wayward children. Those are the problems that we dwell on, that we obsess over. And those problems are real, okay? And Jesus really does care about those problems, but they aren't ultimate. They're secondary problems. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's actually getting to the root of all of those problems. And the root of all brokenness is sin. Sin is rebellion against God. It's putting other things in God's rightful place in our lives. And God's rightful place in our lives is first. You see, God has a design for every single aspect of creation. Whether it be marriage or relationships or commerce and sin wreaks havoc on God's design. God's got a, a design for marriage. He's designed marriage to be between a man and a woman where they're mutually submissive to one another, where the man actually loves and serves and leads his wife selflessly instead of being selfish and domineering and saying it's my way or the highway. And he's designed women to be there for their husbands, to love them, to be patient with them. I'm thankful I've got a wife that's patient with me because I need it. Right? And we're, but when, whenever we don't live within that design, like whenever I decide one day to wake up and be selfish, guess what that does? It causes friction in marriage, right? And all of a sudden, it's not as good as it could be. It's not as good as God has designed it. Sin wreaks havoc on our lives. And see, what, what happens is we know that, and we notice this brokenness, but we tend to want to fix the symptoms rather than the sickness, right? We tend to want to fix the symptoms rather than the sickness. So for example, if we're having a problem uh, in our marriage, right? And, um, you know, two people in marriage feel like, well, I'm not getting my needs met. Well, we tend to think the problem is, well, you know what? My wife just needs to start doing the dishes more often. And she just needs to start meeting my needs more, right? If she would just do that, then things would get better. If she would just do this and this, things would get better. And, and, and the, the, the wife is thinking, if my husband would just do this and this and this, then we wouldn't have these problems in our marriage. And so there's this stubbornness, right? And we can't get past this. And there's this friction in our relationship. What we're trying to do is we're trying to deal with the symptoms instead of looking in our own hearts and going, maybe I'm being selfish. Maybe I'm allowing sin to wreak havoc on my relationship. Maybe the solution is not that my wife needs to meet these standards or these um, expectations that I have. Maybe I just need to start looking at how I can serve her better. 
Whenever we try to fix the symptoms instead of the sickness, it's like clipping weeds in your garden with scissors. What's going to happen? It's, your weeds are going to grow back. It might look good for a couple hours, but the weeds are going to grow back. You see, sin is a big problem because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin separates us from God and leads to death and eternal separation from God. You know, death is the, uh, there's a lot of brokenness that sin causes and death is the climax of that brokenness. Death is not a part of God's original design. And death is not something that makes God happy or pleased at all. While God cares about the collateral damage that sin has done in our lives, he's much more concerned about healing the root. Jesus teaches this principle over and over in Scripture. In Mark chapter 8, verse 36, he says, What do you have if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? The answer is nothing. All is lost. We want God to solve all of our problems, but first he has to heal our hearts. So the principle here is your sin problem is much greater than your brokenness. Second thing Jesus is teaching here by forgiving this paralyzed man before he heals him is he's making a claim that he's God. Now Jesus doesn't come out and say, I am God here, but it's implied when he pronounces forgiveness. And we know that by the way that the Pharisees and the scribes react in verse 7. In verse 7 they respond, he's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. Everybody in that room knew what Jesus was doing when he forgave sins. Jesus was making a claim to deity. Because everybody in Jewish culture knew only God forgives sins. And this is where the crisis is, both in this story and for us today. The crisis in this story is this. Does Jesus really have the authority to forgive sins? Does he really have the authority to forgive sins? Let's keep reading to see what happens next. Look at verse 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The funny, the funny thing is the Pharisees are right in what they say. Only God can forgive sins. Their problem was that God was standing right in front of them and they missed him completely. The reason they missed him is because the scribes and Pharisees were offended at the prospect of Jesus forgiving sins. They believed God would forgive those who tried their best to keep the law. And they just so happened to think that they were pretty good at that compared to other people. They also happened to believe that this paralyzed man probably wasn't doing a very good job. You see, in Jewish culture, it was pretty typical to believe that if you were blind or paralyzed or something like that, that you had done something to deserve it. That you kind of got what's coming to you. They almost had this karma type of belief where, well, you know what? If you, you know, you remember the book of Job. If you ever, ever read the book of Job, Job loses all of his stuff and his friends come around him. And at first, they're like, oh, Job, we're, we're so sorry. And then after, you know, a couple hours, they're like, so, bro, what did you do to deserve this? Like, you must have done something really bad, Job, because only, you know, God would never, like, let this happen to you if you hadn't messed up big time, right? That's how they typically thought. So Jesus just waltzing up and forgiving this guy because he had faith, that's scandalous to the Pharisees. That's scandalous to them. Their barrier to belief was that they didn't want to believe in Jesus. Because for them to believe that Jesus could forgive sins meant that their righteousness scorecard didn't matter. 
It meant that it didn't really matter how much better than they, they were than this paralyzed man or how much better they were than other people. Because if Jesus forgives sins on the basis of faith alone, then it doesn't really matter how good you've done in your life. It's all irrelevant. All that matters is faith. And what that meant for the Pharisees and the scribes was less power for them because, you see, they got power because they were viewed as these high and holy people. It was pride. What's your barrier? You know, it might not be pride, but maybe for you, your barrier is your brokenness. Unlike the paralyzed man, maybe you want Jesus to fix your brokenness before you'll believe. Maybe you don't trust Jesus because your marriage is still a mess, or you're still sick, or you're still in debt. Is there a reason to believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins when he hasn't healed your brokenness yet? Christians, I don't want you to gloss over this this morning either. If you're a follower of Jesus, I don't want you to sit here and think, I already believe Jesus can forgive sins, so this doesn't really apply to me. But here's the reality. You and I still sin every single day, right? We still mess up all the time. So can Jesus forgive today's sin? What about tomorrow's sin? See, every time we give in to a besetting sin that we consistently struggle with, we're tempted to doubt that Jesus has really forgiven us, that we are really clean. How many of you have days where you feel unworthy to pray or to worship or to be used by God? Raise your hands. How many of you have days like that? Then you need to ask God to open your eyes right now and help you see what's in this text. Because I'll tell you what, God's desire for you is that you would ha never have any days where you feel like you can't approach his throne, where you feel like you can't pray, where you feel like you can't worship him. There may not be a more important question than the one we're answering today. Because you see, if we're not convinced that Jesus can forgive sins, then peace is not possible. If we are 100% convinced Jesus has the authority to do this, then there's no reason to be convinced that he can handle any of our other problems or any of our other brokenness. So it's massively important that we know the basis for our hope and belief that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. We need to know the basis for that. How can we have assurance that Jesus alone can forgive sins? Well, Jesus gives us the clue in his answer in verse 8. Let's look at the first part of that answer. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? So Jesus does something that's really typical, and you're going to see this a lot through the book of Mark. He answers a question with a question. Uh, I saw something in a, in a commentary the other day that uh, out of all the questions that Jesus was asked, he answered two of them in the Gospels. And he asks something like 308 questions. Isn't that fascinating? Sometimes asking the right questions is the key to unlocking something in our lives. Sometimes asking the right questions. So, but if we turn Jesus' question here into a statement, it would sound something like this. His question, why are you questioning these things in, in your heart? In a statement would read, you shouldn't be questioning these things. That's what he's telling them. You shouldn't be questioning these things, guys. It should be obvious to you. You shouldn't be questioning. You should be worshiping. I can imagine the scribes and the Pharisees scoffing at Jesus and like pointing at the paralyzed guy still laying there on the mat going, look. He didn't even heal the guy. Who does this guy think he is? Forgiving sins. 
But Jesus' ministry wasn't done in a closet before then. I mean, they knew full well. We just saw in chapter 1 how Jesus was already going around healing people, casting out demons all throughout Galilee. These people knew that. Some of them were there to witness it. They had already seen Jesus heal numerous other times, but it wasn't enough for them. Jesus told the, the scribes in John chapter 5 verse 36, He said, The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. You see, Jesus had already been doing works that bore witness that He was the Messiah, that He was from God, but they didn't see it. They didn't see it. It's the scribes. If the scribes had eyes to see, they wouldn't be asking, who does he think he is? They'd be asking, what must I do to be forgiven by Jesus too? They were missing the clear signs, so Jesus gives them one more. Look at verse 9. Jesus continued, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Jesus' answer to their question is an action. He heals the paralytic. Now, Jesus means for this to be game, set, match. Like this, like the conversation is over. This should settle the question. Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins by demonstrating that the kingdom of God is here, right now. And, you know, they couldn't have missed the allusion to Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6, that prophesied about the coming Messiah. Listen to Isaiah 35 and what it says about the Messiah. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I know the paralytic, I know that lame man didn't miss it. I know he didn't miss that illusion as he leaped out of that room like a deer. These things were happening right in front of them. Our question this morning is, does Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? His answer to the scribes and Pharisees was healing the paralytic. His answer to us today is an empty grave. The cross is where Jesus is heading right now, guys. He's heading to the cross. And that's why He came in the first place. He knew the good news that He was proclaiming ultimately hinged on His own death and resurrection on our behalf. The empty, the empty grave is the climax of the gospel, the good news. I want to I show you this morning the good news using a tool called the three circles. Some of you have seen this before. It's going to be on the screen behind me. And um, so God has created the world and he created it good. We talked about God's design earlier, right? We talked about God's design and how He has made us to have a right relationship with each other. And God's design is represented by that circle here. God says, if you will obey my commandments, if you will follow me, if you will love me with all of your heart, things will go well with you. But inevitably, we've all decided to go our own way, to do our own thing, right? 
We've all decided to depart from God's design, and we talked about that earlier, and that's what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God, and that sin separates us from God. Because we have sinned, we are no longer holy, and God is holy, and there's this veil, this separation. And because we decide to do things our own way, because we think we know better, it ends up in brokenness. And that brokenness is represented in that circle. And none of us like being in brokenness. We're all looking for ways to get out of brokenness. We all have this void in our hearts that we want to fill with something. So some of us will try to fill that brokenness with drugs and alcohol because we think if I can just, if I'm drunk or high, it numbs the pain of the brokenness and I don't have to feel the brokenness. For others, it might be a relationship or sex. If I just, you know, have a, a guy or a girl in my life who will, uh, you know, show me affection or who will meet my needs, then I'll feel appreciated and loved. For others, it might be, you know, a, real, uh, a job or money. If I can just get these clothes or get this house or work my way up to this promotion, I'll get the, the respect I deserve and the affirmation that I so long for. And for others, it might even be religion. If I just go to church enough or do more good deeds than bad deeds or if I say my Hail Marys, then God will be pleased with me and He'll bless my life and things will go well for me and I'll get good karma. But you see, these things, they act like rubber bands. They might temporarily get us out of brokenness, but ultimately, we can't get out. We get snapped right back into that brokenness, but there's good news. And the good news is that God does not leave us in that brokenness. And the good news is about Jesus. You see, God, the reason Jesus came, Jesus right now in Mark chapter 2, we're just a few chapters away from the cross. And Jesus knows that's where he's going. Jesus came and we're watching Jesus. Jesus never departed from God's design. He loved people the way that we should have loved each other. He perfectly obeyed God. He was innocent and sinless. But even though Jesus did that, he came for one purpose, and that was to go to the cross for you and for me, to die on the cross for our sins, to take the punishment, the death that you and I deserve as our substitute in our place. And Jesus died on that cross, and he was put in a grave. And he was in a grave for three days. And then three days later, he walked out of that grave. Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And today, Jesus is alive. He is king over all creation. He is seated at God's right hand. And he has said he is coming again soon. And that is good news that death and sin has been defeated. But we have got to do something with that good news. We've got to do something with that good news. We have to receive it. We have to, by faith, receive it. You see... The scribes and the Pharisees were just as close that day to Jesus as the paralytic was. But one received forgiveness and healing, forgiveness of sins and healing, and the others didn't. What was the difference? The paralyzed man and his four friends came to Jesus in humility and in desperation, acknowledging that they fell far short, that they were in sin, that they were broken, and that they needed a Savior. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't think they had any need for Jesus. So they went home not justified, while the paralyzed man, the people that, the kind of guy that nobody would think God would ever use, went home healed and justified. You see, he turned from his sin and he believed that day. You see, we've got to receive that gift by turning from filling our lives with these other things, whether it's sex or money or drugs and alcohol or relationships or affirmation from other people, whatever it is that you're trying to fill your life with, 
You've got to stop trying to fill your life with that and acknowledge that Jesus is the only one that can fill your life. Believe that he died on the cross for you and rose from the dead and you will be saved. And you will receive God's forgiveness and then you can be restored back into a right relationship with God as he has promised to pour his Holy Spirit out upon you and change you from the inside out. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Jesus has authority to forgive sins because of the cross and the resurrection. He has defeated sin and the effects of sin, the brokenness that comes along with it. So if you're not a Christian, my question for you is, why are you still looking around for the solution to your brokenness? It's right in front of you. If you are a Christian and you find yourself looking to other things to try to fill your life right now, my question to you is why have you turned away from Jesus? You're not going to find what you're looking for anywhere else. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, many people want more signs. We had a discussion, uh, Chris and, and John and I at the coffee shop met a, met a man the other day at the coffee shop. And we had a discussion and, and uh, he said he didn't believe that Jesus is God because no one had presented him with sufficient evidence. You know, but I got to thinking about that. It's not that he needs more evidence. It's that just like the Pharisees, he doesn't want to see the evidence that's already right in front of him. And that's what it comes down to. Because he enjoys being the king of his own life. Jesus has already answered everyone's request for a sign. Like many people today, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were, were asking him to prove himself with miraculous signs over and over again. Listen to his response. Listen to this exchange with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 16. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And Jesus answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Anyone know what the sign of Jonah is? What happened to Jonah? We went through the Jonah series a while ago. What happened to Jonah? Somebody shout it out, I don't care. Swallowed by a whale. What, then what happened? Spit out. How many days was he in that whale? That's right. What's Jesus talking about? The sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah is the resurrection. It's his own death and resurrection. It's the same for us today. Are you looking for a sign? Are you struggling with doubt? Look no further than an empty grave and a bunch of changed lives. A.W. Tozer says this, he says, A Christian knows a thing to be true, not because he has verified it in experience, but because God has said it. Here's the, here's the big point I, I want you to take home this morning, guys. You can believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins because he has already demonstrated his authority over death. You can believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins because he has already demonstrated his authority over death. As we close this morning, I want to give a few points of application. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, my question for you is, where are you looking this morning? Where is your gaze set? Are you fixated on your sickness? On your bad relationship? On your debt? 
on your own sin and your own shortcomings? Or, like the four friends, are you fixated on the one who has overcome all of these things? If you have trusted in Jesus as your Savior and King, then He has already taken care of your biggest problem, sin. Remember Mark chapter 8 verse 36 from earlier when Jesus said, What do you have if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? We could turn that question around and it's just as true. What do you not have if you have your soul? What don't you have if you have your soul? You see, that's reflecting the idea that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 8 verse 32 when he said, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God is willing to send his own son to die on the cross for your sins to take care of your biggest problem, don't you think he can handle your lesser problems? Don't you think he cares about your lesser problems? Don't you think he cares about the fact that you're in debt or about the fact that you're sick or about the fact that your family's a mess right now? He does. God will, God will in, and is most definitely able to restore creation, to reverse the effects of sin. But that won't happen, listen to me, that will not happen to its fullest extent until Jesus comes back, okay? There may be some brokenness that God's not going to heal right now in your life. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 22 to 25. Here's what it says. Paul says this. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. In other words, something is forthcoming. Right? There's pain right now. I'm sure any women who've had a baby can testify and say amen to that. There's pain, but the joy that comes afterwards. Right? The joy is coming soon. It's coming in the morning. Right? And we ourselves, Christians, we groan inwardly as we await the redemption of our bodies. Alright? This full restoration hasn't taken place yet. But it's coming. And the reason we can know it's coming is because there's an empty grave. And we've got the first fruits of the Spirit in our lives. The kingdom of God has begun to break through in us. Followers of Jesus can trust that restoration is coming because there's an empty grave. Second application if you're a follower of Jesus this morning is that, you know, we need to be like these four friends. We should let nothing stop us from bringing our friends who are in brokenness to Jesus. Not roofs, not crowds, nothing. Listen to how Jude 22 and 23 says it. Jude says, And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Notice that the four friends didn't bring the paralyzed man to a pastor, did they? They brought him to Jesus. And you can do that too. My encouragement to you is know the gospel. 
Know the gospel. Practice the three circles tool that you can share it with others. If you don't know who to practice with or how, how to practice, come and talk to me or come and talk to somebody at our church. We've got lots of people in our church, practitioners, who know how to do this and who'd love to train you in it. Know the gospel. Know how to bring people to Jesus. Know how to get on top of that roof and carve out a hole in it so you can lower your broken friends down to Him so they can receive healing and forgiveness of sins. Have compassion on your friends. Snatch them out of the flames, as Jude said. Don't let them perish forever in fire while you stand next to them watching with a fire hose in your hand. Practice the three circles this week and share it with someone that you love who doesn't know Jesus. That's my challenge to you. Share the gospel this week with someone that you love that does not know Jesus. Lastly, for those of you that don't know Jesus this morning, or maybe you're not sure, maybe you're thinking, I'm not really sure if I've ever really had a relationship with Jesus, you might be like the paralyzed man, and you're in brokenness. You can't move, you don't know where else to go. You've tried everything to find meaning and purpose in your life, but you're empty. Don't be like the Pharisees and the scribes today, looking right past Jesus for other answers. He's already clearly demonstrated that He alone has the authority to forgive sins and heal brokenness. He is King over all creation, and He wants you to acknowledge Him as your King. He wants to tell you to pick up your mat and walk so that you can follow Him. So get up from your mat of sin that you've been lying paralyzed in your whole life today. You can get up. You don't have to stay in that mat. You can get up today. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So if that's you this morning, I'd encourage you Get with your tables in our discussion time and ask somebody how you can do that. For our response this morning, we're going to move in. We're going to have some discussion questions up on the screen. So I want you guys to get uh, with your tables. And uh, maybe the front two rows, you guys can combine if you want. And um, let's, uh, let's move into a time of discussion. And then we'll close with worship and our tithes and offerings, okay?